Right, can you, can you hear me okay? You can, then, then you have my sincerest apologies. Um, con console yourselves with the simple thought that I have to listen to myself all the time. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's lovely to, uh, to be back again, and this is becoming somewhat of a regular feature, but certainly one that uh, means a great deal to us. Um, obviously, we bring greetings from uh, the motherland from England. Um, I'll, I'll make sure there's a, a second receptacle up at the back there for when you leave it will be uh, signposted as backdated taxis. <laughs> okay, right, well, um, <laughs> right, well if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to dive straight in because we, we do have um, an enormous uh, amount to do today. Um, I, I shall do it all as briefly as possible. Um, normally the, the kind of the approach I take when I'm teaching is that when the last person's gone home I start to wind up. Okay, so um, I was speaking at a church once and someone came up to me afterwards and they said, look, Boris, we've, we've, we've all experienced, you know, sort of what it is that, that kind of someone's going on a bit and, and sort of people are tapping their watches. And he said, but Boris, did you notice today while you were speaking that people were waving calendars? <laughs> okay, right. Well, let's, um, let's dive in. And uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm just going to read verse 23 to 26. And Paul says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the cu this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we've got is that Paul is writing to a church and he says, when you come together, here is a do this. And what we're going to be asking today is, okay, so what exactly is the this that we are meant to do when we come together? And in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, the Corinthians were doing things all wrong. We're going to be seeing this. And Paul was saying, look, please do it right. But obviously, because he was saying this isn't the Lord's Supper, because you're doing it all wrong, obviously we see from this that this is one of the things that the, this is called, the Lord's Supper. And where I want to start here is just with what the Bible says in the original language, because when you get this phrase, the Lord's Supper, supper translates the Greek word datenon. And where we need to start is to realise that that Greek word denotes the main meal of the day. And that is all it denotes. 
When Paul writes and uses this phrase, the Lord's Supper, the very words, by definition, refer to eating a meal together. And so what we're going to be looking at is establishing, first of all, that the Lord's Supper is a communal meal that a church eats when it comes together. And we're going to have a look at the various phrases, obviously, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, it gets called communion, perhaps not a very, a very good word and, you know, sort of for it, and I'll maybe mention something about that later. And, uh, but what we're going to see is that the Lord's Supper is the church Sunday dinner, all right? It is the shared main meal of the day, also referred to in Scripture as the love feast. Now, Jesus instituted this love feast, this supper, at the Passover meal. And it was obviously just prior to his death. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this thing in the context of four connected biblical feasts. So we're going to see how it fits into other things that we see in the whole counsel of God across the whole reach of Scripture. Now we'll start with the Passover. Jesus instituted this while he was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, obviously, you well know the story. Israel ended up enslaved in Egypt, and God delivered them in order to take them to their own land, where rather than being slaves, they could have freedom. So they were going to the promised land. They were going to Canaan. And at the same time, God was going to judge Egypt. And what happened was that when, when that day of God's judgment came, which would be judgment on Egypt, but deliverance for Israel, for God's people, then what God said is the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And obviously that's where the name comes from. And what he said, he said, look, you Israelites, you're my people. What you've got to do is you've got to slaughter a lamb. And when you've done that, take the blood and put it on the lintels of the doors of your houses. And what happens is that when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your houses. The judgment will not come on any house that was covered by the blood of this slain lamb. Now, obviously, the picture that we've got here is that once the angel of death passed over, Israel left and they got out of Egypt and into, or on their way to the promised land. Now, just get the picture here. Egypt represents the world because Egypt was where Israel, as God's people, were delivered out of. So in Egypt, we have a picture of the world, of, of our, our natural state before we knew Jesus and were born again. Now, while God's people were in Egypt, they were ruled over mercilessly by the taskmasters. And these were the slave drivers. And it didn't matter what Israel did, the, the Jews could not get out of the clutches of the taskmasters. They were in total bondage to them. And I put it to you that that is a picture of our sinfulness. That is a picture of the sinful nature that you and I have. We are in complete and utter bondage 
to it. So, I put it to you that we have a picture, Egypt is the world and the Egyptian taskmasters is the flesh. And of course, Pharaoh, who was in control of the whole system in Egypt and who was in control of those taskmasters, represents the devil. And so we have a picture here, ultimately becoming a believer is to be delivered from the world and the flesh and the devil. That's what the Christian life is. And this is the picture that we've got. Israel coming out of Egypt and the Passover feast that accompanied it is a picture of what it means when we believe in Jesus and when we are saved from the judgment of God because we believe in Jesus. Now, these early Passovers, they had two aspects. They were looking back and they were looking forward. So what happened was that as God brings his people out of Egypt so that they can start going towards the promised land and freedom, God institutes a feast. He says, let this surround eating and drinking together. There's going to be a feast that will look forward to something and it will look back. And of course, each time they took the Passover at this point, it looked back to their deliverance from Egypt because they rejoiced that God has set them free and brought them out of Egypt, but it looked forward to the day when they actually got where they were going into Canaan, into the Promised Land. And so this meal, this Passover, it had a past aspect and it had a future aspect. And we'll be back to that in a later talk. Now also, this feast of Passover coincided with something else. Because God didn't just say, right here, have a particular feast, you know, it's called Passover, and leave it there. He also, at the same time, said it's going to coincide with another feast that is going to be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what happened there is that the Jews were for seven days only to eat unleavened bread. And this kicked off. They had to go through their houses looking for any leaven and to throw it out. Okay. And of course, the point is that leaven in Scripture always represents sin. Now let's actually have a look at this. Turn with me to Exodus and let's actually see when the Lord kicks this thing off with them. In Exodus chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to read the first 20 verses. Don't, I mean, I'll read verses. If you don't get there in time, don't worry, just listen and I'll kind of read them. So Exodus 12. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is where Israel's year kicked off with the Passover. Right. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Because, of course, they're getting ready to scarper once the angel of death has brought judgment to Egypt. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now, here's the unleavened bread bit. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. So the further picture here, is that we have the actual Passover, which depicts when we're delivered from the world, the flesh and the devil, when we believe in Jesus. But that immediately coincides. You see, the Passover and Feast of Eleven Bread start concurrently. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, if you like. And therefore, the further picture of this unleavened bread is that, okay, now you've been delivered out of Egypt. Now, in unleavened bread it's time to begin to have Egypt taken out of you. And it represents being delivered from the power of sin. So can you see that? The Passover represents, and we're going to be looking a lot of what I call uh, salvation past, present and future, and that will develop as we go through this. Salvation has a past, present and future aspect. Its past aspect is being delivered from the penalty of sin. And that's when we believe in Jesus. That is the Passover. Okay. The Bible calls that justification justified. Think of it like this. It's justified, never sinned. Jesus has delivered us from the penalty of sin. And that's past salvation because that's already happened. You believe in Jesus. That happened when you believed. That's a done deal. That will never be revisited. Your past salvation, deliverance from the penalty of sin, is over and done with. 
What unleavened bread represents is then, having come into God's kingdom, having been made a child of God, God wants us to be good children. And then another process begins, which the Bible calls sanctification, which is ongoing deliverance, not from the penalty of sin, that's been done, but from the power of sin in our lives. Because leaven represents sin. So therefore, the Passover, you get saved. You believe in Jesus and get saved. The unleavened bread represents that now the Lord wants to be working throughout the house of our life, going into room after room after room, clearing out the leaven, delivering us from the power of sin. And of course, what we're underlining in this talk is that all this is represented by meals together, eating meals together to remind us what the Lord has done. Now, in this context, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just want to show you Paul writing to a church, you know, trying to sort out various problems they had. Let's see what Paul says. And in 1 Corinthians 5, and in verse 6, he says this. And the context here is the Corinthians have got believers amongst them who are in unrepentant sin, and, and they're saying, this is okay. And Paul says, no, it's not okay. And he says, look, your boasting is not good. Don't you realise that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? That's what leaven does. A tiny amount has a disproportionate effect on the whole. Now, can you see, that's the feast of unleavened bread. He says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Can you see what Paul's saying? Your believers, you know, you've had your Passover, you're born again. Now the unleavened bread means you should be dealing with sin. And he says, therefore, let us keep the festival or the feast. Let us keep the feast, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and, and truth. And of course the point is, Paul is writing this, planning eventually to start dealing with the whole thing about the way they eat the Lord's Supper and share that meal together. So what I'm just wanting you to see is that here, the Passover, this first meal that we're looking at, represented becoming a believer and then following the Lord and being set free from the power of sin. But again, it's all meals. Again, perhaps I could just remind you how John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same thing, the Passover Lamb. Jesus is our Passover. And also, you might not be aware, and this is absolutely fascinating, at the time of Jesus, the, obviously the lamb sacrifices happened in the temple. Does anyone know where the lambs who were used for that sacrifice were born and raised and shepherded? In a field in Bethlehem. Not only was Jesus the Lamb of God, he was born in Bethlehem, which was the place where the Jews raised the lambs which were destined to be slaughtered on the temple. And the shepherds, when Jesus was born, who were gathered by the angels, those were the shepherds who were rearing the sheep who were going to be the lambs who were slain in the temple sacrifice. And there they are, the first to get to Jesus and to worship him, the Lamb of God. 
So what we've got there is in the Passover, we see very briefly how it figures. It's a picture of following Jesus, the Christian life, what Jesus has done. But it is a meal, and that's what you need to get at the moment. Right, now let's move on to feast number two. That's the first one, the Passover. Now the second connected feast is actually what we call the Last Supper. And it was the fact that Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples when he talked about this do this that we're looking at. So if you go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And uh, I'm going to read from verse 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Um, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung, uh, sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now this is a unique Passover meal. And this Passover meal is unique for two reasons. The first reason is because this was the last Passover meal that the Lord ever wanted Israel to celebrate. Why? Because the Passover represented something that was going to happen in the future, the Lamb of God dying on the cross. Jesus was about to do that. Jesus was about to fulfill the Passover and replace it with something else. And as we're going to see, that's the love feast in the church. Therefore, the first unique thing about this is that the new covenant is about to supersede the old, and we're going to be looking at that later, what that means, okay. And so this is the last Passover that God wanted Israel to celebrate because it's about to be replaced with something else. And the second thing that is unique about this Passover is because it is the crossover point from the old Passover, which is about to be replaced, into the new thing that God wanted it replaced with. 
So it's not that there was anything wrong with the Passover meal. There wasn't. But it had done its job. And now it gave way to something else. And one of the ways that you can think in terms of, you know, like the old covenant and the new covenant, and we'll see this a little bit more later. You know, think of it, you know, when Challenger, when the space shuttle takes off, you've got the big booster rockets that are there just to get it out of the Earth's gravitational pull, out of the atmosphere, okay? And once they've done that, they're rejected. They're not needed anymore. And then other mechanisms and propulsion systems cut in. Now then, does that mean that the booster rockets are no good? Does it mean there's something wrong with them? They're being thrown away because they were no good. No, they're being discarded because they've done their job. And when Jesus came, the old covenant, the Passover meal, had done its job. And this is the crossover point into the new propulsion, if you like, that was going to snap into play now that the booster rockets were gone. Here we really see if the old covenant was like the booster rocket that's discarded, the new covenant was when the Lord got into orbit. And that's the picture that we've got here. So I just want to show you now a little quick kind of history on the format of the Passover meal because we need to understand the way in which Israel celebrated the Passover when Jesus celebrated it with his disciples and to see the significance of it. Now originally we've already seen the Passover was eaten standing up ready to go out of Egypt okay um, at a moment's notice and so it was looking back to deliverance from Israel or from Egypt but was looking forward to getting into Canaan. Now obviously as the years passed Israel got into Canaan. So the eating up became, you know, standing up became a bit superfluous because they weren't planning on going anywhere. And so they eventually ended up eating the Passover, not standing up ready to go but reclined because they knew that they were already there. And Whereas originally the Passover looked back to deliverance from Egypt and looked forward to getting into Canaan, into the Promised Land, eventually that changed. And whereas it still looked back to deliverance from Egypt, it looked forward no longer to getting into Canaan. They were already there. Shall I tell you what it was looking forward to? The coming of Messiah. And if you look at verse 20 in the verses that we've just read, it says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. So the Passover at the time of Jesus, now the future aspect, was waiting for the coming of Messiah. Now, let me just take you through very quickly the order of events at the Passover. Remember, I've said that we're looking at the Lord's Supper in the context of four connected feasts. Okay. Now then, when they celebrated the Passover, it began with an opening prayer and thanksgiving. And then the first of four cups of wine were passed around, everyone gathered. So you want to note that. At the time of Jesus, the Passover centred, or, or, or the format, was four different cups 
that were passed round. So you had an opening prayer and thanksgiving, and the first of four cups of wine were passed around. Then herbs would be placed into a source of salt water. The head of the family would then take one of three flat cakes of unleavened bread, and he would break it. Then, in response to a question asked by the youngest, ablest member of the family, so probably not a two-year-old, but maybe a four- or five-year-old would, well, I mean, Bethany could do this, no problem, she, she's four. The youngest member of the family asked, hey, Dad, why are we doing this? And then the father, the head of the family, would explain what this represented, how God had delivered his people out of Egypt. And just note there, it's not something we can pursue in great deal, but just note there, the children were absolutely part of this thing. It's, this, isn't, this wasn't for the adults and the kids are left out. They played an absolutely vital role in it. Okay. So then the story of the Passover, what it represents, was told. That having been done, they would then sing Psalms 113 and 114. After that, a second cup of wine was poured and was passed around. So, cup of wine number two. Then everyone washed their hands, because at this point they're going to move on to the main meal bit. And a grace and a thanksgiving was said. The bread, more bread was broken and dipped into that bowl of herbs and sauce and the salt water, okay. And then the climax of the meal happened and they ate the roast lamb. So now they sat down, if you like, to the main meal bit, the roast lamb and everything that accompanied it. Now just know it was at that point, and we're going to see this in a minute, that Jesus stopped and instituted the Lord's Supper. When he did the do this in remembrance of me, it was at that particular point. Okay. And then the third cup was passed round. All right. So you've got cup number one, cup number two, main eating of the meal, cup number three. Okay. Now then, in the normal course of events, at the Passover, then there would be more singing. It would be Psalms 115 to 118. And then the fourth and final cup was passed round and drunk. Okay? So what we've got is in the Passover meal, it surrounded the drinking of four cups. And at a particular point, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and in so doing, use the third cup of wine to represent it. Okay. So, what I want to show you now is, well, we're going to pick up the actual Last Supper. Go, go to Luke 22. And um, this is fascinating. Luke 22, and I'm going to read from verse 14 to 18. So this is Luke's account of the same events. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So here we've got the reclined position. We're up to the second cup and the second breaking of bread. And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So let's now just go to verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Now that's the third cup, all right? The third cup after the main meal was the one that Jesus used to symbolize this new covenant that was coming into being, okay? Now then, the question is, thus far in what we've read, where's the fourth cup? We know they've had cup one and two because that happens before the main meal. And we know that they've eaten the main meal because this is after the supper. And there's the Greek word on again, after the main meal. Alright? So we know that Jesus drank cup number one, cup number two, and now he drinks cup number three. Now, where's cup number four? Well, maybe we just haven't found it yet, so let's look a bit deeper. But just start bringing into your mind that Jesus is saying things about, well, I'm, I'm not going to eat anything again now until the kingdom of God comes. I'm, I'm not going to drink another cup of wine until the kingdom of God comes. But hang on, Jesus, you've got another cup of wine that's due to come after the next couple of psalms. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink again. Okay. Right, let's go back to Matthew, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and I'm going to read verse 26 to 28. Some scriptures we'll read repeatedly because I'll be bringing out different little points about them. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, there we see, that's the third cup. Yeah, so one and two have happened, and now he drinks number number three. Well, let's, let's go down into... Um, Verse 30, and then we read, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now that's curious. Because whereas there was supposed to be a bit more singing, there was supposed to be another cup. Well, maybe Matthew just didn't mention it. You get that sometimes in the Synoptic Gospels. One writer mentions little details that another writer didn't. Okay, But again, we've still got this question. Okay, so where is the fourth cup? Well, the simple fact is, Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. Nowhere does scripture have us seeing that Jesus drank the fourth cup. In fact, this hymn that they sang and then went out were the final hymns after the fourth cup. They sang the hymns, they didn't drink the fourth cup. Now, why not? Why didn't Jesus drink the fourth cup of wine with them? Well, in verse 29, he says... I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The reason Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup is because that cup represents a feast, a meal that is yet future. 
And therefore, because it was yet future, he says the time for that feast hasn't come yet. So I'll drink that one with you at that feast when the right time comes. And of course, the feast there that Jesus is talking about is what in Revelation is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns to earth, then he will drink a meal with, he will drink a cup and eat a meal with all of his people throughout time present there with him. Just go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse 6 and 9. And of course, this is all surrounding the actual second coming of Jesus when Jesus returns to earth. And John says, um, hang on. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord Almighty God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So here we have an angelic announcement that the wedding supper of the Lamb is about to happen. What immediately follows in the next verses, the second coming of Jesus to earth. And then this great meal that Jesus eats with all his gathered people throughout time. So, what have we got? What we've got here is that the Lord's Supper is one of four connected biblical feasts. We've seen the Passover in the Old Testament. We've seen the Last Supper this crossover between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, so cups one and two. We've seen the fourth cup that Jesus didn't drink, which is this future feast when he comes back. Okay, so what's the third cup? The third cup represents the Lord's Supper, the thing that Jesus was saying, this is the feast, this is the meal that you're to have every time you come together on my day as a church. And so what we're seeing is quite simply all these feasts are meals. The Passover was a meal. You sat down and that was the main meal of the day. The last supper that Jesus had with his disciples was a main meal. When Jesus comes again, the marriage supper of the Lamb is just that. It's a main meal. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, if what I'm saying is right, then as we look at this in more detail, we would expect to find that this Lord's Supper that Paul talks about is also the church sharing the main meal of the day. And so now, let's go to 1 Corinthians and let's see exactly that. Okay. But you see the point there, the four cups of the Passover representing these four feasts. The third cup represents the Lord's Supper. Now when we come to 1 Corinthians, we just need a little bit of a background to the letter. 
Corinth was um, a very singular place, even in the ancient world and even amongst Greeks. Um, the phrase to Corinthianize became a byword in the ancient world for meaning to corrupt morally. Corinth was one of the most degenerate places on the face of the earth at that time. And one of the reasons for this is because it had in it, I mean, there were loads of temples in Corinth, but there was one called the Temple of Aphrodite, um, otherwise known as Venus, the goddess of love. Now, love feasts, religious meals eaten together, were quite common in the ancient world. In fact, any, any religion that didn't surround its worship by eating was a bit odd. Love feasts were the norm, right? Now, the love feast at the Temple of Aphrodite, the priestesses were temple prostitutes. It was a drunken orgy. It was the lowest of human behaviour. And this temple was in Corinth, okay? And so, therefore, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, the believers in the Corinthian church came from two backgrounds. Converted Jews, because there were Jews who lived in Corinth as well, but there were converted indigenous Greek Corinthians. And this background of, of worship being tied in with drunken orgies, that was the background that the Greek Corinthians had been converted out of. And part of the background to, to this uh, letter that Paul writes is that some of the converted Greeks were still going down to the Temple of Aphrodite and having the love feast there. So, on, on the Lord's Day, they were with their church and having the Lord's Supper, the love feast there, but during the week, they were still going down and practicing immorality at that love feast. And this is the background to, to Paul saying, look, you can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You know, make, make your mind up. But that's, that's the background to it. The love feast, the Lord's Supper at the Corinthian church, was beginning to degenerate into the kind of behaviour. I mean, it wasn't anything like as bad, but there were people getting drunk at it. You know, the rich were getting there early and eating all the food, and the poor, and it was probably their only good meal each week, were getting left out. So the love feast at the Corinthian church was degenerating into bad behaviour, and this connection with the Temple of Aphrodite was one of the reasons. So that's the background to it. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, Paul starts to tell them about the time in Israel's history when Moses was up in Mount Sinai getting the, you know, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and all that stuff. And uh, down below, Israel, um, you know, kind of did the golden calf thing and they started having an immoral love feast. And God sent judgments against them and some of them were killed, you see. And of course, that's interesting because later on, Paul goes on to say, look, some of you are being judged by God and dying because of the way you're behaving at the love feast. And Paul does a connection. And he says, look, these things in the Old Testament are there as a warning. So he says, look, when Israel had a drunken, irreligious love feast, God judged them. And he said, that's what's happening to you. So in chapter 10, that's how Paul kicks off. Again, what's he talking about? He refers back to a feast that Israel had. Okay. Um, the whole point here is um, 
eating and drinking. Then, after that, in verses 14 to 22, you get the thing about Paul saying, look, you can't, you can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There he's dealing with these guys who were still going down to the temple of Aphrodite. And he says, look, look what happened to them in the Old Testament when God's people did that. He judged them, he killed them. And in the Corinthian church, some were actually dying because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Then the end of that chapter is that Paul starts going on again about, look, food, meat offered to idols and, you know, what you do about that. And of course, that was important because not only did they have to know what to do when they ate at unbelievers' houses, they had to know what was okay for the food to bring along to their love feast. So can you see, chapter 10, the whole push behind it there is eating and drinking. Well, why? Because Paul's leading up to dealing with the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking. Then at the beginning of chapter 11, and this is a real quick whiz through, okay, uh, he deals with the women's issue about head coverings and stuff like that. Haven't got time to go into it. Then at the end of chapter 11, you get this main section dealing with this abuse of the love feast. All right. And remember that after this, he moves on immediately to deal with the other abuse at Corinth, which was how they were abusing the use of the gifts of the Spirit. But what we want to do now in chapter 11 is read, first of all, from verse 17. All right. And this is where he's dealing with the Lord's Supper. Now then, the question is, what is it? What can we tell from this thing? He's saying you're doing something wrong. What can we tell about it from what he says? Okay. He says, In the following directives I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place I hear when you come together as a church there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. Don't you have homes to... Uh, yeah, he said, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Well, is, is this a communion service as, as churches have traditionally done it? Well, of course not. Don't you have homes to eat and drink with? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. So what he's saying, look, if this is how you want to behave, you stay at home and eat and drink. If you just want to think of yourself and not share the food, you go home and eat. If you want to get drunk, you go home and drink. That's not what this is all about. But the point is, what is he clearly correcting here? It is the abuse of a meal that they were having. And Paul refers to this meal as the Lord's Supper and earlier in 1 Corinthians 10 as the Lord's Table. It's a shared meal. Let's read verse 33. And he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So he's saying, look, if food is the only reason you're coming, if that's the only reason, you, you stay home. But can you see, Paul's talking about people coming who are hungry and eating, but they're going ahead and satisfying their hunger to the detriment of others who haven't arrived yet. And not only are they eating a full meal, but there's enough here to drink in order for them to get drunk. So, can you see that what we are dealing with here 
is that when Paul corrects the Corinthians for doing the love feast, breaking bread, communion all wrong, what is the one thing that we can clearly tell? That it was a full meal. When the apostles of Jesus planted churches and then passed on the traditions, the practices that they were to observe when they came together, the apostles taught them to eat a meal together. Now I have a simple question in regards to that. Where did the apostles get that idea from? From Jesus. Paul said, I passed on what I received from the Lord. Paul only taught churches what Jesus had taught him. So we know that Jesus wanted churches to eat a meal when they came together. His meal, the Lord's dinner, the Lord's meal, the Lord's supper. In the New Testament, churches gathered together around food and drink. And at some point when they were together, they ate a meal. And this meal in scripture is called the Lord's Supper. Now, that's all I want to establish in this talk. And if the other four talks are this short then any cessationists among you can know that the age of miracles is still here. Because <laughs> I'm never that short. Okay. But just to lengthen it out, because I want you to feel that you've had value for money. And I, I, I'll tell you how I can guarantee that today you'll get value for money. Because this is free and it don't cost you anything, all right? So you'll certainly get value for money, however I perform. Okay, right. One of the things that I'm tremendously keen on doing in regards to things like this is making sure that people know what the experts say. Now, sometimes people say, Beresford, why do you depend so much on quoting the experts? And by experts, I mean recognised world-class biblical scholarship. The big boys, you know, the, the ones who write the commentaries, you know, the ones who write the Bible dictionaries, the ones that everybody acknowledges these guys know scripture and these guys know the history of it, all right? That's what I mean by the experts. When people say, Burris, why are you so dependent on quoting the experts? My answer is, because I ain't one. So therefore, I've got to draw on the writings of other experts, well not other experts, I ain't one. But here's the point. I don't want anyone to think that this is just my opinion. I want to make it quite clear that when I say, as I've just demonstrated, that when the early churches gathered together, they did so around a meal, I'm quite simply reporting a factual thing that we see in scripture that no Bible scholar worth his salt would challenge. So when I say that the Lord's Supper, as practiced when churches were influenced by the apostles, I'm not saying something that is my opinion. This is not merely my interpretation. 
This is not merely my slant on something. This is something that is unanimously recognised by the experts. Now, let me do some quoting to you then. Okay. And these, these are the big guns. I've shown you one simple thing. It's undeniable that Scripture shows us that the New Testament churches had the Lord's Supper as a full meal. Okay? Now then, Donald Guthrie was former vice principal of the London Bible College. He writes voluminous books on Bible doctrine and Bible history. He's a top man. Listen to this. And this is in a lion handbook, The History of Christianity. All right? So this is a, a, a mainstream, middle of the road, published by lion Christian handbook on the history of the church and blah, all that stuff. And he says this. In the early days, the Lord's Supper took place in the course of a communal meal. All brought what food they could, and it was shared together. So forget everything I've said. Donald Guthrie agrees with me. So, so, so don't take it from me. This, this is something all the experts agree on. Dr. John Drain is the lecturer in practical theology at Aberdeen University, adjunct professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, California, <laughs> and visiting professor at Morling College in Sydney, which probably doesn't matter. <laughs> but the British connection does. <laughs> So you don't get a bigger wig than this. This guy knows his biblical stuff. Listen what he says in the New Lion Encyclopedia. So again, this is published by Lion. Hardly an esoteric publishing house. This is mainstream Christian teaching. And he says this. Jesus instituted this common meal at Passover time at the Last Supper shared with his disciples before his death. The Lord's Supper looks back to the death of Jesus and it looks forward to the time when he will come back again and we'll be looking at that later. Throughout the New Testament period, the Lord's Supper was an actual meal shared in the homes of Christians. It was only much later it was only much later, he says. and that, So, the apostles were long dead. The New Testament was long written. It was only much later, he says, that the Lord's Supper was moved to a special building and Christian prayers and praises that had developed from the synagogue services and other sources were added to create a grand ceremony. Now, these are the experts. Now, no Bible scholar, whether, whether world famous like these guys, or, or just someone in a, a seminary somewhere that no one's ever heard of, but who equally knows his onions, no 
Bible scholar, no one who knows their biblical onions has any argument with the simple fact that when the apostles planted churches, they centred around a full meal eaten together. It's a simple biblical fact. Back to John Drain, and this is in his book Introducing the New Testament. The early church observed the Lord's Supper as an exclusive community meal. And I labour this because I don't want you to take anything from me. Canon Leon Morris, okay? Now, he's a principal of Ridley College in Melbourne. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, which was written in the series of the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, okay, and this is into Varsity Press, so you can't get more mainstream than that, all right? In his section on 1 Corinthians 11, which we've just briefly looked at, he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and here's where the quote begins, reveals that at Corinth, the Holy Communion was not simply a token meal as with us, but an actual meal. Moreover, it seems clear that it was a meal to which each of the participants brought food. I. Howard Marshall was formerly Professor of New Testament Exegesis at the University of Aberdeen. And he writes this. And I know for a fact that certainly in England, this might not be the case over here, but, I mean, no one has ever been through a Bible college or a theological college in Britain without being handed this as one of the first books they're required to read. All right? And he says this. The Lord's Supper was observed by his disciples at first as a communal meal Sunday by Sunday. So where we've come is simply this. We've thus far established that the Lord's Supper is a meal. It's your dinner. It's your supper. Uh, over here in America, supper means main meal. In England, it doesn't actually. Supper might be a little snack you have before you go to bed. So really, technically, in England, we'd say properly the Lord's meal because the word supper pictures a snack. But the Greek, date non, means a full meal. And this is what we've established. It is Jesus's meal. And when a church comes together, that is one of the things that they do. Now, in the next talk... Having established that this is a full meal, we're going to move on and look at the setting of the Lord's Supper. What are the other circumstances that surround it? And we're going to build up a complete picture of, of how a church would meet as long as the apostles held sway. And then after that talk, then we're going to be looking at the significance of the Lord's Supper. So we'll take a break there.